You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with John Lee. He has over 20 years of entrepreneur, managerial, and product UX design experience. Founded three companies, built and led teams of over 100 engineers and designers, and shipped over 20 products from mobile phones to cloud services to AI computer vision systems. On this week's episode, we talk about what are the key benefits and advantages that augmented reality can offer an individual or an organization? How does augmented reality align with an overall digital transformation or innovation strategy of companies? Are there any specific regulatory or privacy considerations that need to be addressed when implementing augmented reality solutions? How do you incorporate user feedback and insights into iterative development of AI-driven spatial reality experiences? And much more. All right, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, I'm super excited for this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. With us, we have John, but later on, we're going to show the product that his company is building, which well, everyone's going to be shocked and surprised. It's incredible. But before we get onto that product, John, can you tell us a little bit about your career up until this point? Yeah, no, uh, thanks for having me here. It's uh, really exciting to, to share some of the stories uh, and, and where I think spatial computing is going, augmented reality is going. Uh, my career up to now has uh, really been in the sort of consumer electronics space. I got started out of grad school uh, in mobile phones, joined ultimately what became Motorola, and that actually sent me to China back in 99 to work on the first touchscreen cell phone. So a few years before the iPhone, but then that gave me a chance to really, and I, my background is UI UX, so it gave me a chance to build a team there and, and really help to deliver a few generations of the, of the first touchscreen cell phone with handwriting recognition, no dial pad. And from there, I had a chance to join a startup in Shanghai where it was the uh, first time to work on the first Linux smartphone as they were just being called in 2002. And from there, did a, a startup, a few startups myself, some Android uh, customizations for Chinese manufacturers, amongst others. And the next thing, I'm back in the States and working on, on everything from thermal imaging to computer vision, and then eventually in the world of electric vehicles for a few years, from autonomous driving to the whole vehicle. And, and just joined XREL now about a half year ago, working on building up a U.S. team to really focus on finding the partners and content and apps to make this spatial computing really happen. What was China like back in 99, 2000 when you were there? And you said without the touchscreen, so you're talking about the original Palm Pilot or? So back then it was the PDA phone, if you remember the PDAs from the Palm Pilot days. And it was really saying that uh, because of the time, Motorola had produced the chipset for the Palm Pilot, the Dragon Ball chip with the tri-band phone at the time, marrying them together and having the first PDA phone as they were being called before they were called smartphones. So yeah, it was early days where there was no dial pad and it was complete with a stylus, which is where iPhone did a good job of saying, I don't want the stylus, I just want to use my finger. But with a stylus, you would be able to handwrite your text messages, play games, do your contact management and this and that. Oh man. Yeah, that must have been an interesting time. I, I was in China first time in 2008, and I just saw how much it grew and changed in such a short amount of time. I can only imagine what 99 to that when the bubbles happening here, 
Did you, was there any ripple effects or did you feel anything there when that happened? So not so much. It was, I mean, China's always been very much fed by its own consumer market and felt a little less of the bubble, if anything, in, in many ways. I mean, at that time, I mean, Facebook hadn't even come into China yet, but they were in China for a little bit. Google was in China for a little bit. But yeah, so you didn't feel too much of the bubble in that sense. Crazy. Yeah. Okay, so talking about the technology that your company's working on right now, how is augmented reality currently used? What are some of the use cases for it? How is it used in business? Where do we see it? Yeah, augmented reality has been around for some time. And because of the really the technology and the costs for delivering a headset upwards of $1,000 or $3,000 or more, traditionally it's been really found a lot of use cases in, in enterprise customers, industrial use cases. So today, the bigger sort of use cases are for remote assistance. So you can have an operator at this complex machinery, dial into headquarters, and then someone uh, with the expert knowledge would say, oh, draw a, draw a circle in, in space and say, oh, go focus on this panel, go do this, do that. The other area that it's been really used a lot for is, is training. And again, just uh, having the ability to have the information in front of you as you go operate some complex machinery. But now uh, our company has always been focused on the consumer application. And that means delivering a, a headset at the consumer price, making it affordable at uh, you know, less than $400 or even more in the future. And now with the consumer space, we're finding that uh, it's really uh, about having this big spatial display. So a lot of our initial consumers are, are gamers. So they have maybe a Valve Steam Deck where they have a small screen on this horrible device, powerful device, but then, but it's a small screen, you have to bend your neck down. Now plugging this in, they can set it upright and have this massive screen in front of them as they can really enjoy and immerse themselves in the game so so talking about just developing a product and with our audience a lot of entrepreneurs a lot of people out there that are, that have an idea and they want to build something how do they go about building it whether it's for that consumer where you you talked about that price point versus that enterprise where you know you could probably be a lot more flexible with the end and price tag yeah, I think that at the end of the day, it's really what does that entrepreneur bring to the table? What's something unique that then can really help to add to this sort of developing space? So again, while AR has been around for a little while, it's really a, a new phenomenon to have accessibility to to the everyday consumer. And so if you are, so early days, we're seeing a lot of gaming companies, independent game studios come to them to the space because one, they're already familiar with making things in 3D space. So we're built on top of Unity. So you've already been doing Unity games, it's easy to then bring things over, create new things. The other side of things, though, is how do you take existing content and then again, bring that into a 3D space. And so I think that early entrepreneurs in this space will be really experimenting and try to figure that out and see what people are willing to pay for. Right? So it's one thing. And but the, again, why gaming is really quite interesting is because people are willing to pay for a good game experience. And so that's why I think we see a lot of that in the early days. But beyond that, I think really, if you think about what is augmented reality, it's really about bringing information in front of the, your field of view. And so how do you then eventually, where we have the advanced AR, where you're doing the full sort of environment recognition, you can recognize the walls, the tables, chairs, table, furniture, et cetera. How do you then merge that information with your environment? Uh, but uh, today it's really about now, how do you, you know, before we get to that point where then you have, you know, really light glasses, it's all in one, you can wear it all day. Uh, it's about how do you then take what people are doing today, which is consuming content on their devices and then bring that and give them a better experience. So whether it's gaming, videos, et cetera. So I'm trying to right now really think of where for the consumer the benefit of augmented reality is. 
I mean, is it at that point now where I'm thinking the Blade Runner movies or that, or is it at the point where for me, I think wearing something like that would be inconvenient. I just, where's the current benefit for the individual and where do you think it'll be in the next few years? Yeah. I, I think that, I mean, again, the goal is to get to something like what I'm wearing today, just really light 20 grams or so where I have no, nothing attached and it's just connected. And for our audience, John's just saying his regular glasses. That's correct. That's our favorite classes. The, that's the goal. That's where we're all looking to get to, I believe, as an industry. Today, we have something that's uh, getting closer to that, but it's uh, still about 80 grams, still a little bit of a bulk to it. I mean, still have to fit the micro OLED projectors and so on and so forth. And to keep it light, 80 grams, we use a tether. And so we use the battery off of your, your laptop or your phone or, or any other device. So John's showing right now for everyone listening, the, the model that Xreal has created. And I'm curious, the, so the battery is external. If the battery was internal, how much would that weigh? How, I mean, because I see the, the okay. Oculus Quest, those things are what, a pound or two, it's, it's, three it's, pounds? It's yeah. not light, yeah, yeah. It's not light, huge battery. The battery still only lasts for a little bit. Is the battery the big thing right now then for the size of the goggles or what's impact in the size? Yeah, so the impact of size, there's really, I would say, two parts of it. One part of it is it's just optics. How do you get a high resolution to screen display in front of your field of view? Uh, and so in this case, our sort of approach, which a lot of other manufacturers are using, the optical approach of what's called Burbath optics and there's a certain physics around that that you just can't escape the sort of thickness and size. There are other methods that are coming, waveguides, et cetera, that will really make it thin and light. But that's one aspect. Tell us about this different technology. I mean, there's a lot of buzzwords you're throwing out there. Sure. The Burbath optics, for the most part, is really, if you look at the digital cameras and you have that little viewfinder, you have that little projector that's allowing you to see what the lens is seeing. So we really have one in each eye there. And then based on how we then from the top bounce the, the light and ultimately to your eyes, that determines the optics and how this grows to the size and we can minimize it as much as we can. But invariably, it's still optics that we have to get around. The waveguide side is basically a film that you would place on top of the, the glasses that allow you to then direct light from the side to then effectively then bounce onto. So a lot like how holography works, you're basically redirecting the light from the side and then ultimately into your eyes. And so that will then allow, and again, there's, it's a very different technology, so it will allow for really glasses that look like what I'm wearing today. It'll be a little thick on the side because you have a little light engine coming from the side to project, but otherwise that will really be the future. Today, it's I'm seeing some great samples, prototypes, proof of concepts, but it's still expensive and not quite at that couple hundred dollar range that consumers are looking for. When you're saying expensive, you're talking like three times, four times, are we talking 10 times 20. About three times. So, so it's still within range. So we think that in the next sort of few years, it'll start to really come down in prices more and more often they're available. And the techniques are, manufacturing techniques are, are, are developed as well. So then for consumer adoption, right now, is it the price is the biggest barrier? Is it the technology the biggest barrier? Is it, what's the biggest barrier from me going down to the coffee shop and seeing everyone wearing one of these? So I, I think that, I mean, for us, we're selling these at $380. So it's starting to see some really good uptake. We've announced that we've sold over 200,000 units already. So we're starting to get to the point where people are saying, hey, this actually is something that could really improve my experience uh, with the laptop, with the gaming device, et cetera. But what's really maybe getting in the way is the, just really, I think a matter of, it's still, again, a little bit unwieldy. You still have a, a cord. You still have to put it in a case. You still have to take it out to when you really want to use it. So that's why in some ways, 
anyways, today, eventually, I believe it will replace your mobile phone, right? It's, it's going to be all in one. Why look at this little black rectangle in your, in your pocket, from your pocket in your hand, uh, to just being able to put it on and seeing all the information that you need, be able to interact with it. But till we get to that point, we'll still you know, work with these things. And then again, different techniques to try to offload the weight. And so I think that really the next two years, one to two years, it's going to be more around the PC use case, where if you sit in a, in a cafe, you're going to sit in front of that thing for a good 30 minutes to an hour. At that point, to then be able to put on a pair of glasses and now have much more than your screen real estate of your laptop screen, but actually the whole space in front of you to then see the stuff you're searching for, see the stuff you're trying to organize, see the stuff you're trying to, to edit and compose. I think that will really change the way we work. So I I think that's that's coming. That's I think the next one to two years, you'll start to see more and more people jump into the space. Bring what does what does video conferencing look like in, in AR? What does Word and, and PowerPoint look like in, in AR? Right, and then and as I maybe send you something, and there's a 3D model in it. Well, you know, why I should be able to look at it, rotate it, and, and really interact with this thing we're working on collaboratively, for instance. So I got a lot of questions there. One, it's I thought it was interesting. You said it would. You'll think it will replace the laptop and then after that, the cell phone. For the laptop, then what device would complement it to act as the keyboard? Or are we getting rid of the keyboard completely? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest challenges to overcome both whether it's laptop replacement or phone replacement is really input and, and text input at that. Uh, not everyone, I mean, voice recognition is getting really good. But not everyone's going to want to sit there and just talk into the air and say, hey, compose message to Sean. Tell him that... It's available today, but no one's really doing it because that's just not the way to do it. The There are different approaches. People are experimenting everything from wristbands where you can then in the air compose sort of text to be able to then have virtual keyboards where you can trace your fingertips and so on and so forth. Other things that exist today are wireless, Bluetooth wireless keyboards, right? So you can imagine maybe just bring around a very light keyboard that you just take out and, and type with a little trackpad for them. So I think that would be one area to watch to see how it evolves. But text input especially, and today you can have the hand tracking. You can have with our glasses, with the ones with the cameras, you can actually detect your, your fingers, your joints, and see how you can draw in midair and so on and so forth. But how long will you be able to sit there and look, move your, wave your arms around without getting tired? So that's why if you watch the Vision Pro announcement, you see the lady sitting on the couch and her movements with her hand gestures are really just from a neutral position resting to then really just up and down in a small pinching. That's again, thinking about how do you make it something that you can repeat time and time again without feeling fatigued just from <laughs> interacting with these objects. That's interesting. I never even thought about the human movement would be the limited factor, not the battery. Just the person going, I'm tired. My arms are exhausted. I'm done with work for the day. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the other thing is that when you're sitting from your laptop with your mouse, your trackpad, etc., you're within very small space able to manipulate these digital objects. If you're now projecting something onto the wall over there, I have to stand up and go in and actually go in and, and, and interact with it. Then that's maybe good because we're now moving around and no longer just sedentary, but, but also it puts the limitation. I have to actually reach out and touch something. Again, there are other ways to, to get around that where maybe this little laser pointer that one of the things that we do is we use a phone as a pointer and you can actually sit here and, and project a beam and you can actually pull things closer and further like a remote control. So there are ways around having to go and, you know, beyond arm's reach. But, but those are new things to think about as an interaction designer. So going back, I'm curious about, you'd mentioned maybe a Zoom call or that. Would your, because there's no video that would be looking at your face, would you have your AI person be your 
what the other person is seeing or has that not been thought of or what, what are some ideas that are bouncing back and forth between people? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as we saw in the Vision Pro again, it's a great example where you have your avatar potentially representing you uh, to the other space. With uh, face tracking and, and generative AI and this and that, I think there are people looking at erasing digitally the, the, the glasses in front of you so that if you then have a camera, then you can have that sort of more natural interaction. Uh, there's some really amazing things that, again, using uh, high def cameras to produce these sort of high definition avatars that on the other side just looks like as if you and I are just sitting across the the room, for instance. So if you are experimenting, uh, there's no clear answer immediately, but yeah. What other things are designers thinking about for these virtual goggles? I never thought about the arm movement tiring people out. I That's super interesting, just the keyboard in front of you, you're working this small space. I mean, when you're sitting there designing these products or your team or whoever, what other things are they starting to think about now for the product or how people are going to interact with it, how they're going to use it? Yeah, so... I believe very much in terms of really understanding how we already do things and what are our behaviors today that we have to then design to. For instance, we are spatial beings. We live in this 3D world. And so we generally know where the door is. At my desk, where the bathroom is, where the bedroom is. At my desk, I know that this little stack of paper on the left-hand corner of my desk is kind of stuff I worked on last week. And based on the depth of that, I can then find something that maybe was even earlier in that week versus later in the week. And so we generally have a sort of spatial mapping of, of where things are. I believe that type of spatial awareness we need to then think about and bring to this new AR world. Again, it's about augmenting the world with digital information. And the key is then not to break too many of the behaviors that we already uh, have that makes things, I mean, how is something intuitive is that you find things where you expect them to be. And so again, if I am working on something that is a week ago, maybe it should be a little bit further away than something that's something more recent. So I think these types of things, interaction designs we're look, we'll be looking at and then looking to see how it re-manifests itself in the digital AR world. I mean, I definitely want to ask questions about AI and augmented reality. Before even that, let's go back to your time with the EV car. How does working for an EV car company, how does that parlay into what you're doing now? So actually, it's a really interesting uh, space. And it was really the NEO, the Chinese EV car maker, actually invested in Nextrail. And it was that that one uh, press release that I read that I then reconnected with the, with the company and found myself with the opportunity to, to join this company. And, and the reason why it was because NEO was exploring what is that sort of backseat entertainment uh, experience going to be? And instead of we see now lots of little displays in, in the car, but one, you might get sick because that thing jostles around with the vehicle. So Neo was saying, hey, now with these augmented glasses, each person sitting in the backseat has their own personal cinema. And so I think from an entertainment point of view, there's already going to be quite a bit of use cases there to really entertain and from any seat. Driver's seat is an interesting space because then there's, again, uh, how do I navigate? How do I, today with GPS being as great as it is, I'm always missing turns. It's like, wow, just so I turn here. I'm actually coming to this building. I turned into the building before because I didn't know where I was supposed to go. But now imagine whether, ideally, we don't have to wear the glasses, but there's the augmented projection of, hey, that's the point in space, 300 feet in front of you that I need to achieve to make a left or right turn. Uh, So I think that the, I saw this great video, I think Audi was having this uh, space cockpit where they have all these ways to control and really see information and giving a whole new experience to driving. So it should be pretty exciting where that's going. What do you think will come first, fully autonomous cars or everyone wearing augmented reality glasses or maybe that augmented reality on the dashboard directing the car that's fully autonomous? So 
autonomous is going to, and we're already seeing it, right, in terms of the, and the key there is operational domain. And so for companies like Attic who are doing warehouse to warehouse, point to point, maybe it's in urban areas, maybe it's not, but it's a very set sort of schedule. And now you can offload the labor needed or because you can find labor to then have vehicles travel from point A to point B on a set schedule. I think as we ultimately all want to get to the point where as a consumer, we have autonomous streaming in the vehicle. I can just push a button, the, the steering wheel recedes, and I can go and enjoy my cinematic experience as I travel from point A to B. But I think that's going to be some time because there's too many variables, too many things to get over to really achieve that. However, for set areas like in San Francisco for a robo taxi to, to operate, I think from whether it's a Zooks or a Cruise or a Waymo, I think these will be more and more operational and, and will start to take the, I mean, it's already happening, right? So in that sense, the level of autonomy is going to, is already here coming, varying, etc. Augmented glasses where everyone's sitting there reading them, there's no reason why it's uh, using them. There's no reason why it doesn't happen today, right? Again, we're seeing some really great uh, response from the market. And I wouldn't be surprised if the next time I jump on a flight, you start to see someone using the glasses. And because I talked to one gamer, he was a game developer, he was saying that when they wore the Oculus or the Quest Pro on the flight, they were just like, what, <laughs> what are you doing here? You know, putting on this huge helmet. Whereas where when I'm wearing the glasses, no one even bats an eye is this come out guy wearing his sunglasses on the plane. Do you think there's going to be any augmented reality coffee shops where you just go in, get your augmented reality with your coffee? Potentially, but then there's really no difference than, than anything else because the, the key with augmented reality is that you still see your environment, right? If it was a VR coffee shop, it's a whole different story. But I think with an AR uh, coffee shop, uh, it's really any coffee shop, right? How different is the technology for AR for, and VR? The biggest challenge between two is that the uh, both have to deal with rendering uh, digital assets in, in, a, in a space. The biggest challenge with AR is that environment awareness. Uh, it's knowing that, hey, this, this let's say, uh, digital ball is going to be occluded by that, that, that seat that you're sitting in, or it's going to be occluded by that person standing over there. So be able to then know the, the depth of the room, the surface of the room, to be able to then interact with the real world with the digital assets. I think one of the exciting games that I've seen recently is Nyan takes a paradox where it's really taking Pokemon Go is supposed to be that AR experience, but people turn it off because it uses a battery, all these other reasons why people. However, Paradot really, because it does sense the environment, it can really have that little digital pet go behind things, go in the ground, come out of the... So that's where you're starting to, I think, see the latest, the greatest in terms of really environment sensing interaction with the environment. I had no idea. So it sounds like AR is actually more difficult than VR. In many ways, it is because you have to do that environment sensing. And that's where I go back to the question said earlier, besides the optics in terms of the weight and thickness and the battery of the glasses, it's also that processing of data. And so then that's what then will have a lot of you know, heat and, and use the, the, the battery to, to do all that processing. So so as that becomes, as we address that through uh, systems on chips, there's ways to continue bringing that sort of computation down, whether it's cloud-based. So there's all sorts of ways that people are, are experimenting and trying out. So it's just a question of time before they can really get to be like. What are those things that they're trying? What's in the lead? Is it having everything cloud-based where it's just sending signal and that's doing all the computation and sending the information back? Or is it 
such as yourselves, connected to your phone and maybe is the phone doing any of the computation or yeah, what, yeah. Where's, where's the lead right now? Yeah, so I would say it's at the end of the day, the different technologies are there or it's, it's available, it's accessible, but it's also a business model question. We were experimenting with doing a cloud-based rendering, but at the end of the day, we shut that project down because it was pretty costly to have that cloud-based rendering. And even though the connectivity latency issues were, were generally okay, again, it's just that does that sort of um, uh, economics work? We find that our strategy, I mean, the reason why I joined the, the Xreal in a big part is because it's a very pragmatic approach to to approaching this this industry. What I mean by that is that rather than trying to put everything all into one on day one, it's realizing that one, the technologies aren't quite ready to push all in one at a consumer price. And then two, the market's not even ready for true AR experience because there's an educational process that has to happen. And so with that pragmatic approach, I believe that this sort of tether will, will be around for a little while because it just makes it offloads the processing, it makes it light, it makes it allows us to have a better experience in the end. So how does AI impact augmented reality? I mean, everything right now is AI this, AI that. Is it... Yeah, it's absolutely going to impact it. And the way I see AI in many ways is that if you think about robotics as automating manual labor, I believe that AI is going to automate uh, mental labor. And so what I mean by that is that if I wanted to fact check something online, I'm going to go and search different articles I'm going to read, and then I'm going to go and, and try to make some sort of analysis in my mind and say, okay, this is uh, real or not. Uh, with AI, you can now automate the entire process and assuming it's not hallucinating and all those sort of issues that, that, that we see today, but generally, it's going to be a lot faster to then get at the result. With the automation of that, then, is if you think about the graphic process to put a 3D digital asset into a rendered space, there's a lot of, today, a lot of manual process that has to happen. With AI, you can automate that. So now, as I say, hey, just like the movies, say, hey, show me the statue of Venus sitting 10 feet away from me next to that wall. Then it's able, AI potentially is one way to achieve that almost instantaneously. So I think that the AI will be very relevant how does all that play together with businesses' digital transformation strategies? So I think that the businesses, as they are looking to one, yeah, some businesses are still not even digital yet, right? I think that with AI, it's about automation of tasks. AR is about bringing that information to your field of view. And so imagine, if you will, in the, in the warehouse logistics use case, now the person that is looking to maybe pack a box in the warehouse now has information instantly available. And then the AI aspect can then be instantly adapting to the changes so that, again, the person is the most efficient, does the least amount of work necessary to achieve the work result. So I believe that the, those two really will go hand in hand. How do you incorporate feedback? from the experience while building out this technology. Okay, so like market feedback or consumer yeah. feedback. On the one hand, we are actively trying to engage with our community through Discord, Reddit, and these sort of channels. In early days, it's really the developer super user uh, that is early tech adopters. They understand the technology somewhat, or they're maybe hobbyists or hackers that are looking to do something cool and, and fun with these things. And so that's where it's a really um, active body of uh, active community is that through these sort of channels, Discord and whatnot. But ultimately, it's really about, at the end of the day, seeing what people are, are looking for, what new experiences look for, and then trying to then interact, uh, react to that and then provide those things. For instance, one of the things that we're hearing is that when you're playing games, you have on the one hand, if you're just using keyboard, just in the camera as sort of a view with one hand. The other hand is about moving and doing the interactions with that environment. Well, now using the glasses, you should be able to then just move 
up and down, left and right, and see the camera view, and then you have a, a free left hand to do something else, or or however you're you're playing with the, the game. Oh, are you so. talking about like seeing the entire battlefield instead of just like a small segment, but just in the view there, or what? Well, do you- in in games where you're say running around in this environment, let's say uh, as I'm watching my son play Fortnite, right? So he's running around in this environment, and then he's uh, using having to use one hand to control which way the character looks in, in the field of view, and the other hand is is using to open chest, uh, fight, etc. So now with the glasses it's much more intuitive as i look left the camera on the view of the of the character looks left right so now i can see uh, more one-to-one mapping and then see uh, a, a better experience ultimately so does that mean that for the view they can do a full 360 view of the environment in augmented reality based on from the character's eyes well so uh, in many ways the glasses are really just another display so if you can already see it on the uh, regular monitor then uh, you would see the same as well so uh, having a more immersive 3d view uh, that's the possibility with with the glasses because you have a, a image in each eye so left and right eye so you have that depth opportunity so yeah mm-hmm. Are there any policies or regulations with, I mean, there's a ton of information that's going back and forth between the user, the, what they're seeing, the feedback, everything. Where's the government playing in all this data? Yeah, I think the in today's society, we have to be very vigilant about how we look at the user data and protection and securing of, the, of that data. So from our perspective, in many ways, we're really just no different than a just a monitor. It's really just one in each eye, basically. So in that sense, we actually don't have any user data in that sense. It's really the application that's running the experiences. In the same way that Fortnite has the user data, they would be the ones securing and taking care of that user data. We don't touch that, that data at all. We're just displaying that the gameplay ultimately. But ultimately, from the regulatory perspective, this is still eyewear. So we're right now certified that we're blue light free or what's the the right. But anyway, so we have some certifications to make sure that it's uh, safe for the eye. And we're constantly uh, looking to, there are lots of startups, a lot of companies that are looking at better uh, eye uh, healthcare, wellness, uh, eye healthcare, and even using glasses to treat things such as dementia and other uh, sort of wellness things. So it's it's, uh, definitely an interesting area to continue to focus on. And and one, one, as a company, we want to make sure that we have the the safest, uh, best uh, ergonomic fit uh, glasses. And then two is just trying to enable various developers out there to achieve their sort of wellness and, and healthcare sort of goals. If any developer wanted to, maybe an independent shopper that start to develop games for virtual reality, for augmented reality, for X-Real, what would be the process to do that? So one would be to go to our website and download the SDK. And then there it's a really a software environment on top of Unity. So it's really about understanding uh, how do you create uh, environments, the 3D environments with the Unity development environment. And at that point, we, through our Discord and other channels, uh, can help support, answer questions. There's a ton of information on those channels to learn how to do the basics and, and get started. And yeah, definitely that's one of the areas that we hopefully attract lots of, whether it's existing or new developers coming in and give it a try. And then what should someone be thinking about when, say, they've never purchased any augmented reality glasses in the past? Maybe you've seen ads for Oculus. They maybe have just seen the new Apple. What should they be looking for? What features? What benefits? How should they go about doing their research? Yeah, the exciting thing is in many ways that now that these are becoming available and for the industry as a whole, it's great because in addition to the products that we make, there are other manufacturers that are starting to come out with products as well. 
But how to distinguish between the various glasses, one is first and foremost the fit. Does it fit well? Can you see well? We have different nose pads. We allow you to adjust the angle on the sides of the uh, the glasses to give you the best sort of fit on on your face. The other aspect, even more important, is this than the refresh rate and just for the visual quality. Make sure that it's it's flicker-free and all these sort of aspects. But one thing that really sets us apart from a lot of the competitors is that we have what we we call the three-dot tracking, uh, which means that I can now have a virtual display sitting in front of your field of view, whereas I move my head left and right, this thing stays locked in space. Zero degree of freedom tracking basically means that as I look left, look down, the, the screen is moving with my head movement, which which when you're playing a game, I had a, a great conversation where a gamer said, I've learned to play my game very with my head very still, so I don't get <laughs> so, so I can have the best experience. And so they're looking forward to some of our, our new products, which allows you to have that three degree freedom lock of, of the screen. So yeah, so it would be to summarize when comparing and trying to find the right AR glasses is about the fit first and foremost. And then it's about the image quality and then having that stable type of screen. So Speaking of new product, are there any partnerships or anything that's on the horizon you could talk about? We have some interesting stuff cooking. Can't quite talk about them yet. Everything from new product announcements to also some collaborations that we have. So I'll have to keep you a little bit in suspense there, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, what's the work environment like for the company? And does everyone wear these goggles or these glasses while at work at the company? Uh, so yes, we're, we're using them on a regular basis in the office. It hasn't quite replaced the, the screen. We still need a, a screen because that's it's hard to replace the fact that there's a physical screen there with the information you need at all times but yeah we're constantly jumping. obviously from our perspective we're developing it so we're having to check and make sure things are working and but what i find is that when people are on their sort of taking a break they're watching videos they're sitting there watching a movie or or generally their social media channels yeah so it's from an entertainment point of view it's definitely something that's well used in the company say five ten years from now everyone's wearing glasses what does that world look like hopefully it looks very normal because again as they're getting lighter and uh, we're not alone but we're also exploring different ways so that because today it looks like sunglasses because you have to occlude some of the or block ambient light around you so you get that best view but when you're not looking the, that shading should go away right so that again i can have that eye, eye contact again that's another great thing that apple did is that having the even though it's really virtual reality because you're actually blocked away from the rest of the world but having that screen on the outside so you can see my eyes it just making that eye contact something that we all expect and so again think of it if i'm sitting here with my eyes completely occluded right so you don't know if i'm looking at you or whatnot but with ar glasses it should again look pretty normal in the sense that we're all just wearing glasses that have information that's uh, augmenting my world so what challenges do you see from us today to get to that world where everyone's wearing their glasses i believe that the as we were talking about the various techniques to get that image in your field of view at a consumer price it's bringing and miniaturizing and really evolving the technology to achieve that and then i think secondly it's also going to be really important to find the right content and so we were talking a little bit about the sort of these smartwatch as i'm one of the, the things i use is maybe i'm using strava as i go do a, a, jo- a jog or, or a bike ride i have to look at my watch to see the information but there's no reason why that's not just in my field of view so as i'm biking as i look up i can see you know my heart rate i can see how much further i have to go i can see the navigation of where to make that turn so i don't miss uh, you know on the bike path so i believe that the with the hardware has to also the software the content the apps that really make users say oh i have to the ideally the day when we today if we leave the 
house and we forget our we the wallet doesn't even matter anymore right but if we got our smartphone we have to go back and get it if we've some people if you forget your sunglasses you got to go back and get it well i believe in the future once we get to the point where oh shoot i forgot my ar glasses then then we know we've gotten to a point where we've really found that relevancy in people's lives and it's something that uh, people will really start to use on a daily basis so at the company or other augmented reality companies how do they measure success is it the amount of adoption of their product in the overall market say they get to 0.1% of people wearing their or glass in general, or is it more user hours? Is it more at this point just getting data and feedback? What, what's considered successes right now? For us, uh, we're measuring success based on just a volume of, of, of units sold. It just means that there is that product market fit, that is that resonance, that there's that demand. Uh, what's interesting is that, and I, get, I don't know the specific numbers, but I believe our volume of units sold is probably the combined uh, number of units of the second, third, and fourth competitor combined. Uh, so it just means that there is that market demand and that we measure based on the number of units sold. I think eventually we'll get to the point where it's okay, now the market is saturated with glasses and now it's about are you using it a third of your day, the entire day. So that'll shift as time goes along, I believe. What metrics, maybe not just augmented reality, but early stage companies in general, what metrics should they be tracking or surveys or information? I mean, what should they be gathering early on as they're building out that product or thinking of building it out? I believe it's uh, especially early stage. It's all about that product market fit and, and getting that dialogue. First of all, who's your the, your audience you're looking to serve? What's your target market? If you don't even know who they are, then how do you even engage with them? So I believe uh, for early stage companies, it's really about finding that targeted that market, target audience, developing that communication channels, getting that feedback. And then as then the product gets out there, so whether it's testing ideas for new features or whether it's the product itself, then you get that sort of feedback and continue to iterate based on the that market's needs so with everything you've done the electric car vehicle company the uh, ar glasses the the startups where'd you learn the most of all these companies in the startup ecosystem a lot of what not to do <laughs> for instance i had a mobile app which we had four hundred thousand downloads which seems like a good number but when you then say it's spread around the world in cities that i couldn't even pronounce let alone know where they are on the map then that okay four hundred thousand is really a small off in that big bucket. If I had known then to say, okay, let's take those resources and, and focus it on 400,000 in Palo Alto would be very different than 400,000 globally. So uh, a lot of learnings in that sense, a lot of learnings around how do you start to get that rhythm to the company to deliver that product, right? And, and get that out on a regular uh, rhythm. Because I, I believe you really need to find that rhythm uh, on all levels of a company. Otherwise, you're just operating in the dark and you don't really have a, an area to, to optimize over time. That rhythm's interesting. You, is that more saying that we release a new product every six months? Is that like, what do you mean by rhythm? Yeah, I think on all levels of the company, whether it's a product at a certain sort of uh, frequency, whether it's uh, monthly, if software could be even weekly, uh, for instance, to then maybe more hardware, more longer period of time. But even down to, let's say, HR, down to finance, what is that weekly rhythm of where you are ultimately, hopefully all trending towards the same goal? And then and then check in with the team and then making sure that hey those weekly goals were achieved and that you can keep going in that sense. So that's what I mean by rhythm. And we're next six months, twelve months. What will you be focusing on? What are some big things we're going to hear from you? To me, as I was saying before, I believe that the laptop, the PC use case is going to be a huge area to really bring. Think of it this way: today I'm accustomed to working on my screen, which is a 2D flat surface. As I and I'm guessing that you probably have a browser 
browser open with many tabs? I'm probably at any time 20 tabs, maybe on one one browser and then another browser, another. I, that's how I separate the personal and work. I have this browser for the work, this browser for personal on different monitors. And then as you research a topic, you'll have a whole bunch of new tabs, yeah. right? And then as you open, then maybe you have multiple windows, multiple, right? So you know my wife, I will look on her monitor and there'll be countless tabs open or they're so small you don't even know what the tab is, but for some reason they're there. Yeah. <laughs> because there's a implied some information that's there that you don't want them to necessarily lose, right? Yeah. And then you feel horrible when you restart the computer. Oh my God, where are my tabs going? Yeah. Where? <laughs> but that's because we're dealing with a flat screen. Now imagine you plug in your glasses and suddenly you have your room is filled with tabs. Okay. <laughs> it's just getting worse. <laughs> it's worse. Then, uh, you know, and then how you're haunted you... <laughs> and you can't sleep. <laughs> uh, but then you know, what is that uh, new way of interacting with information when you have the world around you to put that information in right so maybe this set of tabs it belongs in the kitchen right and so when i get to the kitchen that's where i'm exploring that information or hey i'm looking to install a radio in my car so when i get to my car that set of you know tabs open up so it's a way to distribute the tabs within the context of your living i'm curious there because at the very beginning of the conversation it was how can we create this technology so it's how we think you'll move your arms just a little bit because don't want to get tired. And now it's moved to, well, things are going to be different. You know, maybe we'll have this folder, just the kitchen folder. When you walk in, it pops up. What's already being visualized or imagined with the difference in that interaction in the future? It's, I believe it's really all about that context, right? It's the, my set of tabs around recipes for some sort of banana bread is not relevant for me necessarily in the living room or in the bedroom, much more relevant when I'm in the kitchen or at the grocery store, right? So why can't that information travel with me such that when I go to the grocery store, what I have and then use AI to then say, hey, don't forget to pick up these things because I know you're doing this this weekend or whatever. So I believe that the context will inform the information that you find and need at that time. And so I think the, yeah, everything we talked about is just all going, it's really context that's most relevant. Uh, to the users. All right. And John, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Well, if you're in the Bay Area, please swing by our office in Sunnyvale. We're always happy to give people uh, demos of the glasses and other things that we're working on. But otherwise, online, xreal.com. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. And uh, definitely happy to share what we're working on and seeing if there's ways to partner and, and work together to build this new future. Fantastic. We'll have that information in the show notes. And I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast. I'm an investment banker focused on mergers acquisition growth capital. Please connect with me on LinkedIn, Sean Flynn. Open to have a conversation early on. And with that, John, I want to thank you for taking the time this week to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.